Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Hunger and thirst are clarifying. When you are desperate for a drink of water or you have not eaten in days, your biological needs control your actions. In turn, your actions reorder your thoughts and you acquire clarity of vision. You know what you want. You know it when you see it, and you know what you need to do, and you see the world around you in these terms. Now imagine that your biological need for food and drink is co-opted by the obligation to hear and obey God's teaching. Your hunger and thirst for this teaching leads you to act with mercy toward others, which, in turn, organizes your mind. Your mind, now clear of distraction, a phrase usually translated as purity of heart, is wholly conformed to this teaching, allowing you to see God in the world around you. Blessed indeed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 244 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we talked about the first triptych, the first three in three sets of Beatitudes offered in chapter five of Matthew. These are blessings, the blessings of God's instruction for his people. They are the gift of God's land for his people. We talked about the first three verses and the heavenly city, the eschatological Jerusalem, the eschatological Zion. Sometimes people talk about this as the Mount of Sinai, but the fact is that the Old Testament points to the people being gathered on Zion to receive God's law from the Messiah, and that's what's happening. But this gift this inheritance of the land is being shared with the whole world. Right, and the result of each one of these sets is different. So in the first three, the kingdom of heaven, comfort, inheritance of the earth. The second set, being filled, obtaining mercy, seeing God. You can tell that they are easily clumped into these three groups of three. And to be clear, for our Christian listeners who imagine that the Christians somehow have displaced the Jews, and now it is the Christians who are the chosen people. All of this is nonsense. Because this accessibility to the kingdom was already offered in the book of Joshua, for example. Come on. Wherever the Torah is preached, wherever you are, you could be in Minnesota, you could be in California, you could be in Iran. If you hear the instruction of the Lord and you walk According to its precepts, the ground under your feet is the heavenly city. That's 
the deeper point at work here in scripture. It's not about an actual geographic place. That's why it's the heavenly Zion. That's why it's a mountain you can't locate on a map. It has nothing to do with Jerusalem in what we call the Holy Land, which means that all of the blessings offered are blessings conferred once only on Israel and now on the whole world, as Paul explains in Romans, through the stumbling of Israel so that all men would stumble, so that all men could receive mercy. Now, if you're wrapped up in a knot about purity in a worldly sense, where you're trying to figure out how do I become pure, you will never understand the purity of heart that Matthew is talking about here, because as Paul explains and Matthew regurgitates in the second set of three, in Romans, the Torah is given to cause men to stumble, and through the stumbling of Israel, all men stumble so that all might receive mercy. This makes no sense if your agenda is to become something pure. If you view scripture as your vitamin pill or your protein shake or your exercise regimen, why would I want to work out so that I could become fat? Well, I can't help you with that question because scripture is not interested in your biceps. It's interested in communion between all peoples. People want to take things from the Bible and then locate those in our world. When it talks about heavenly Jerusalem, we want to then go out with either a telescope or a pickaxe and go and find out where that Jerusalem is. Or when it talks about the church, we want to go out and look on Google Maps to see if we can find the church that the Bible is talking about. The Bible works on its own. The Bible creates a world. In the same way, you're not going to find Middle Earth around you once you've read J.R.R. Tolkien. The Bible, it's not Middle Earth. It's not talking in those terms. But it parallels that in that it is creating a world that we are supposed to understand as the word enters into our mind through our ear. It's not about applying the Bible to our world, but conforming our mind to the world that the Bible is creating. The Bible creates the kingdom. Jesus's word creates the world in which the human being is supposed to live. Look, there are three critical terms in this triptych, the second set of three of these Beatitudes in Matthew. And the word that comes to mind while you're talking, Richard, is katharos, which is clean, pure, innocent. We'll talk about it when we come to the verse, but it pertains to exactly what you're talking about. If you are single-minded in your commitment to the scriptural word, to what is written in God's law, his instruction, his will, it will control what you see and what you hear on the one hand. But at the same time, if you allow it to, it will give you a clear vision. That's what we're talking about. The other two terms, and we'll read through the text, the other two critical terms for today are Pauline terms also. Dikeosini, which is, of course, righteousness, and this beautiful word in Greek, eleimon, which means mercy. So let's get to the text and we'll talk more about these themes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The first question that should come to the mind of any addressee of the story is how can one be hungry or thirsty for righteousness? But the answer is clear for someone familiar with scripture. 
because the righteousness that Matthew is talking about, the Matthean Jesus is explaining or teaching here, is the righteousness conferred by the righteous teaching. And remember, later in John, this is pushed to the extreme when Jesus has the interaction with the woman at the well. What is it you want to drink? What are you thirsty for? Are you thirsty for water? Because you can drink that and get thirsty again. But if you have a thirst for my instruction, my teaching, that will fill you up. That's already here in Matthew. We've said many times that Matthew and before Matthew in the historical chronology, there's two chronologies at work always. Remember that. There's the narrative chronology, which is important always to keep in mind, but remains the fact that Paul's letters were written first and his teaching is expounded in the narrative. And so Paul talks about righteousness and mercy and purity and so forth. And Matthew is, again, packaging it here. It's a Trojan horse within a Trojan horse. This righteousness is what God confers. Righteousness is not an abstract concept. And if you get enough righteousness points, then you're going to acquire righteousness. That's not how it works. Righteousness is something that the judge confers upon somebody. And so when somebody hungers and thirsts, first of all, hunger and thirst, that's the most basic instinct that the human being has, hunger and thirst, because that's what keeps us alive. With the very basic of our most basic motivations, we care for this thing that God alone then confers upon human beings. Therefore, we submit to God's will and God's ability to alone be the one who confers righteousness. Righteousness only comes from the Lord. And so with one's most basic being, one seeks that thing that he alone can provide. The easiest way to explain this is with the following statement. The teaching is righteous. I want to say it again because I don't think we get it. I mean, we, those of us who inhabit this society in the United States, the teaching is righteous. We are not righteous. We should understand this, but we don't because so much of our literature glorifies vigilantism and violence in the name of good versus evil. This is what all of these comics now, they used to be benign, but now they explicitly promote and justify violence against the bad guy. At least in the past, they'd make an effort not to kill, quote, the bad guy, never mind that there are no good guys. But now everyone feels justified, even justified above the law. And the way we conduct ourselves now as a society is reflecting this teaching. It is the teaching that is righteous. The teacher, even the teacher himself, is not righteous. And if Jesus is exceptional in any way in the New Testament, it is in the fact that he is righteous as a teacher. He embodies righteousness. Paul does not embody righteousness. John the Baptist does not embody righteousness. No one is good. And Jesus will not allow anyone to call him good in the Gospel of Mark until he has been glorified on the cross, until he has been canceled out, until he has faced the test and everything is in the hands, once again, of his father, the righteous judge who delegates the authority to judge to Christ in the resurrection. So there is satisfaction that comes from seeking out and drinking your fill 
of the righteous teaching, the righteousness that can only come from the scroll. Hungering and thirsting for that in one's most basic being is the fulfillment of that righteousness. That is how you come to understand righteousness, and that's how you're filled. Because you're hungry and thirsty for it, you are filled because that becomes the only thing you desire. Soon the Methan Jesus will say, Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. And whatever you ask of your Father will be added to you. This has nothing to do with the things you want. If you quote this verse in prayer and ask for the health of a relative or ask to win the lottery or ask for an iPhone for Christmas, you're missing the point because the thing you seek is the scroll of the law. If you seek knowledge in God's teaching, you will find knowledge and more knowledge will be added to you. It's the same idea here. That's the underlying premise that this is all about the discipline of Bible study. Why? I know that's very boring to people. Why can't it be about something else? Because there's only one way to become wise, friends. It is by studying, period. And the absolute novelty and genius of the monotheistic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, is that against all odds, and in a time when there was no public education, they made the study of literature the center of human life. Historically, this is an absolute coup. Now, religion has devolved in the modern world because people aren't reading the sacred texts anymore, or as Paul says, they're reading them with blinders on. But to the extent that people still take these texts seriously, there's hope for the human race. And in our case, specifically scripture, which for us is the Old Testament and the New Testament together as one book, one canon. So please understand there's a lot at stake here. If you are listening to this podcast, this should be the invitation to you to conduct your own study, to write your own papers, and to do your own podcasts. Everybody is responsible to do so, and you will benefit, and those around you will benefit, and more will be added to you. You will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is a cornerstone of Paul's teaching, certainly a cornerstone of the teaching of the Gospel of Matthew. Right. I mean, the famous prayer that Matthew says in a little bit, as you forgive others, so your heavenly Father will forgive you. The mercy that one receives is a function of the mercy that one gives. So what's interesting is in the first verse that we were discussing, where you hunger and thirst with your basic being to receive that righteousness, here you give mercy. And don't forget, the first three verses were about being given as a gift the kingdom and the land. Now it's about the generosity and giving of mercy, just as one received the mercy. Giving the mercy is a function of receiving that mercy. You'll find very soon a number of parables in Matthew that reflect this teaching, the most famous or the most often cited being the story of the man who had a very large debt and was forgiven by his master and wouldn't forgive a small debt of his friend. It's a very ominous example because the underlying premise of Scripture is that all of us have a very large price 
on our heads. A very large debt. Remember that Paul uses the word redemption and it is literally an economic term, meaning you are like a slave who was bought in the Roman market. So God paid a price. We lose sight of these things. We start thinking of redemption in theological terms and we miss the point. Someone took out a large bag of Roman coins and paid for you. And you can't flip someone a couple of coins? What I love about these texts, and Matthew in particular, is exactly the clarity of the judgment. You don't have to be anybody with any training to understand the problem of not forgiving someone a little bit when you've been forgiven everything. You know, sometimes, Father, we sound like and we get accused of being doom and gloom because we talk about the sin that's on people. But the thing about having that sin on you is understanding that God is also the one who gives mercy and gives mercy to those who are under judgment. Matthew keeps pushing the reader to be more merciful by bringing up how much mercy you've received. But if you've received so much mercy, you had to have a big debt. Otherwise, it's not that much mercy. It's a huge amount of mercy that you've received. And I think it's important. We have this theme come up over and over again in Matthew. And by no coincidence, this is the center of the nine Beatitudes. In Matthew's presentation, this is the central one, the fifth Beatitude. And it's a central theme throughout the book. He's going to hit it at least two more times before Jesus even gets off the mountain. For everyone who thinks that scripture is gloom and doom, or to the extent that we're reading scripture on the podcast, we are gloom and doom, I just ask you to watch the news or read the papers in the United States right now. Just do it. Because this is the fruit of the generation that thought authority and hierarchy and discipline was a thing of the past. And this is what they produced. Half of them are warmongers, the other half are gluttons. That's our situation. This is human nature, and the reason we're in this situation is because we were not challenged as a people with the truth of what we are and how we act. And we've come to a point where we can say anything and do anything, and nothing matters. So I prefer the gloom and the doom of the Lord's judgment against us in his teaching which produces peace and fellowship and brotherhood versus blowing kisses to everybody and then treating each other the way we treat each other today. When you understand, like in these first three verses, that the land is a gift, then you show mercy to those who want to enjoy the land with you. When you believe that the land is yours because you worked for it and you earned it, you have no mercy for those who seem to be freeloaders and carpetbaggers who haven't worked for it, and they don't deserve to be on this land that you find yourself. Here's how it works, friends. I'm going to explain it again because it's one of the most important things I can say to my American brothers and sisters as an American. Obama is how we view ourselves. Trump is what we are. And we need to face this. All of us need to face our cruelty our largesse, our lack of boundaries, our exceptionalism, our hubris, our self-righteousness. We need to face it. We can't be fooled by nice words and we cannot be okay with ugly words. We have to repent. That is the message of the Gospel of Matthew. And no one's going to repent if they don't know they need to. And we are conducting ourselves either like we're right or like it's okay 
to be a harlot. And neither point of view is correct. It's as though the publican and the Pharisee in the United States have decided to form a pact. So please, if you're concerned about the harshness of the teaching, take another look at what Scripture is saying and ask deeper questions about yourself and about the human condition and consider the possibility of hope through the teaching. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I mentioned earlier, Richard, the importance of this term, gatharos. It is about the clarity, the clarity a soldier has when he receives instruction from his commander. That's the clarity, the purity of intention, the purity of heart that everyone should have when they hear Scripture and respond to it. Remember, Scripture is written on the heart. And if you allow Scripture to be written on your heart, if you seek it out, you will see God. And this is a very important expression. It's not to see God the way you look at a statue. It's to see Christ in the needy neighbor. I know it goes without saying between you and me, but let me just remind our listeners that heart in the ancient world is the mind. When we hear pure in heart, we think really nice and really kind and very gentle. But that's not what it means. Pure in heart means clear of mind. It means you're clear thinking. It means you get an order, and then you go and do it. If you have your own opinion and the thing you would like to do or in something else you'd like to do and where you'd rather be, you're no longer clear of mind. You're cluttered of mind. If you want to be clear of mind, then you hear the thing, and that's the only thing in your mind, and you do it. And this goes back to hungering and thirsting after righteousness. My very being, biologically, only wants the righteousness of God. There's only one thing that I want, that's pureness of heart, but in the ancient world, clarity of mind. There's only one thing that I want, and that's the only way that you can see God. Now, we understand it's not seeing an idol. You see God with your ears. Yes, exactly. You see God by hearing his word, and you see God in the Gospels by seeing the word incarnate, but it's the word. And so it's through this word that one can receive it. This word is one of mercy. So with your entire being, you desire righteousness with a clear mind. You want to see that is here the teaching of God. And this is at its center, the mercy that the teaching offers. Remember what we've said in past episodes when we've talked about this instruction that the eye is the lamp of the body. In the ancient world, they believed that the light came from the eye and was projected the way our projectors work now in modern times. So the word would be preached in the ear and what you hear would control what you see. This is how you see God because his word controls what you see. So you can project darkness on the world, according to Scripture, or you can project Scripture onto the world. And if you project Scripture onto the world, you're not going to see the immigrant as a threat. You're going to see him as the holy family sojourning in Egypt. Matthew himself. I mean, it's funny, Father, you and I, all these images we bring in, they're all from Matthew. Matthew 25. When did we see you, O Lord? When you saw the one who lacked food, who lacked clothing, that's when you saw me. Oh, but we didn't recognize you. Well, that's your problem. If you want to see God, then you see the needy neighbor. That's when the image is unveiled in Matthew 25, because you see that Lord 
is the one who is the needy neighbor, the one who is the immigrant, the one who is needy, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. These are the ones who Matthew says is God to you. You treat them with the mercy that you received as if you are paying God back. You can't pay God back. But the only correct response is to show the mercy that you received insofar as you're able. This is how one sees God. It's because, as you said, Father, the hearing of the word changes what we project from our eyes onto the world. We see things in a new way. And when we hunger and thirst after righteousness in that way, that's how we're filled with this teaching. And there's a simple way to test your conscience as to whether or not you've received the blessing of Jesus and the gospel of Matthew in your ear. Just pay attention to your thoughts this week when you see people. What is it that you say to yourself about people? Are you critical of them, dismissive of them? Do you see them as a threat? Do you see them as someone to use in some way? What is your behavior towards them based on the way you perceive them? Just Test your conscience. Be honest with yourself. Pay attention to the passing thoughts that become empty words in the Gospel of Luke. Pay attention to your passing thoughts about the people around you. Examine them. And now think about how Scripture is commanding you to see these people. Do you see an immigrant or a person of a different religion as a threat, as a terrorist, as someone who's going to steal your job? Do you see people from foreign countries as being something different or backwards or something to be defended against? Or do you see these people as children of God? Do you see your enemies as the will of God for your edification? If you've read the big three, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, you definitely would see the people you fear as an enemy as God's judgment. Because that's how scripture erases your enemies, not by letting you erase them, but by erasing them as enemies in your mind. Because who are you going to blame if something bad happens? Your enemy or the one who holds the entire cosmos in the palm of his hand? I think the one to be held accountable is the one who holds the entire cosmos in his hand, which is why all these silly theological discussions about would a good God commit evil are silly discussions. He definitely commits evil against us for our edification. But the way it works is that suddenly the anger can't be against the enemy because the enemy is a manifestation of God's wisdom for your edification. So embrace the enemy and you won't have enemies. In the same way, the poor person in front of you is put there by God for your edification so that you can remember the mercy that you received. By remembering that mercy, then you can show that mercy. And it's always to see things through this lens. That is what it means to see God. Cardia, like the other three terms I mentioned today, Richard, is a technical term. If the law is inscribed on your heart, you will have clarity of purpose. You will know exactly what to do. And you will know exactly what you are seeing when you look in the world around you. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.